0: I'm going to continue reading from Mark chapter 7, picking up in verse 14. When he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand, there is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated. In this he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and defile a man. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. O Father, today, we pray that through Your Son and by the working of Your Holy Spirit, our hearts might be cleansed of everything that defiles, that our hearts might be made new and right with You, that out of our hearts might flow living water, that we might be a blessing and not a curse to others. O Lord, speak to us this day through Your Word, Your holy and inspired and perfect truth given to us, that we might know You. This we pray. Amen. Yeah. Maybe seated. Mark Twain once said, Man is the only creature capable of blushing. And the only creature that ever needs to. Why do people blush? Why do we need to blush? People blush because we do things that bring guilt and shame, and we know it. By nature, we are wicked to the core, as Ephesians 2 says. We are dead in sins and trespasses. We are children of wrath. And while human depravity is continually on display in the news headlines every day, as well as in the course of our daily lives, People have a very stubborn tendency to greatly underestimate the magnitude and power of our sinfulness, our wickedness. And because we underestimate the power of evil, the the, the problem of our sinfulness, we underestimate what it takes to solve the problem of our sin. Uh, The folks in Washington, D.C. tell us if we just had better education If we just had better technology, better health care, a better military, we could solve what ails us. That is, the gospel preached by a huge number of our elected officials. The gospel of Hollywood says, look within, believe in yourself, follow your heart, and you can summon the strength and the courage you need to overcome Whatever obstacles stand in your way, whatever ails you, that's the message of so many of our movies and our popular music. That's the gospel they preach. But the gospel Jesus preaches is radically different. According to Jesus, neither the human collective nor the human individual can solve our wickedness problem. The solution has to come from the outside. It can't come from the right or from the left. It has to come from above. It has to come from God. See, what is sin? We Christians talk about sin. The world doesn't really talk about sin anymore. Doesn't not really familiar with that language so much. What is sin? Most simply put, sin is when we put ourselves in God's place. That's what Adam and his bride did in the very beginning. They put themselves in God's place. In our sin, man tries to become God. Man aspires to deity. Man puts his Word in place of God's Word. He says, we can do it. Or he says, I can do it. But you know, it never works. Man tries to be God. He tries to bring in his own salvation. And he fails. What's God's answer? Man aspires to be God. God responds by becoming man. Man in his pride and arrogance exalts himself to a divine position. God in his humility stoops to become man. And as the God man Jesus Christ does for man, what man can never do for himself, he cleanses our defilement. He forgives us and restores us. See man can't wash himself, not in the way he needs to be washed because it's not his body but his heart. That needs to be cleansed. What defiles a man is not what's out there in the world, but what's in here in the heart. All these issues come into laser sharp focus here in this passage in Mark chapter 7. The Pharisees know something's wrong. Uh, They know something's wrong with the world. They know the world is not what it was made to be. It's not what God intended for it to be. It's not what God has promised for it to be. It's not what they expected it to be. They know something's wrong with the world, but they don't see the true depth of the problem, and so they propose the wrong solution. They misdiagnose the illness, and so they prescribe an ineffective remedy that is really no remedy, no cure at all. Jesus comes here to expose their foolishness and to set them straight. And if we follow this story closely, we can see how our culture repeats the mistake of the Pharisees. And so we, too, need to listen to the words of Jesus just as they did. Let's look at this passage. Verse 1, the Pharisees come down from Jerusalem to check in on Jesus. Uh, Now, we know the Pharisees as the bad boys of the New Testament. They're the guys, after all, who rejected Jesus, and because of them, Jesus ends up on a cross. But to jump ahead to all of that, to pretend as if you know all of that right at this moment, is to cheat this story. Don't jump that far ahead just yet. Consider this story as it unfolds in its historical context. At this point in history, the Pharisees are the respected and highly regarded religious leaders of Israel. Israel is the covenant people. They've been called by God within Israel. The Pharisees are the elite. They're the guardians of the law, the Torah. They're the guardians of orthodox theology. They're the guardians of the traditions of the elders. They were the authorities. They were the teachers who answered people's biggest questions about God and about life. Uh, they didn't hold office in Israel like the priests did. But in a way, that made them even more influential and more powerful. Their position was not handed to them by birth into to a particular tribe. Rather, it was attained through their great learning. Through their skillful teaching and through their reputation as zealous practitioners of the laws and traditions of Israel. If Israel was the best of humanity, the Pharisees were the best specimens of humanity Israel had to offer, the pinnacle of devoted religiosity. They were the cream of the crop. If the Pharisees couldn't get it right, who could? Now, why did the Pharisees come down from Jerusalem to check out Jesus? This is not the first time they have uh, launched something of an investigation into Jesus. Uh, And you get the sense right off the bat, they've come on a fault-finding mission. They've come to look for something, to criticize about the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. No doubt, word of Jesus' miracles and word of his teaching had reached Jerusalem. So they've come down to investigate And sure enough, they find something to criticize. Verse 2, we find Jesus and his disciples do not wash their hands the way the other Jews do before they eat. In fact, this is the question the Pharisees asked to Jesus in verse 5. They posed the question, why don't you and your disciples wash? This is the dispute, this aspect of Jewish identity. Now, this is a little bit of a complicated issue because it requires us to dig a little bit into the details of the Old Testament law, uh, which I know we're, we're not always that familiar with. Particularly, we have to look at the book of Leviticus, which was the holy code that God gave to his people through Moses and especially gave to the priests. In the book of Leviticus, you find there are laws of cleanness and uncleanness. And those laws were designed to function in a symbolic way. They were given to the nation of Israel to teach the Israelites. Uh, if, if, you know, if we're not familiar with those laws uh, in, in a certain way, we can't understand all that's going on in this story. Um, Mark actually provides a little bit of background for us in verses 3 and 4. Mark tells us that the Pharisees, and indeed all the Jews, would wash their hands in a special way before eating. Now, why would they do this? Uh, this was not, a, this, this hand washing, you know. All of us, our moms teach us to wash our hands growing up, so we just associate hand-washing with cleanness in in a hygienic sense. But that's not what's going on here. This is not about health, it's not about hygiene, this is about holiness. And in fact, in verse 4, the washings are actually called baptisms in the Greek. That's the language that's used. These are baptisms these are sacramental washings these washings served as sacramental purpose for the Jews they were ceremonial washings so hand washing is great you know do what your mom told you when it came to when it comes to washing hands but understand that's not the issue here this is not about health or hygiene this is about holy now another detail here Mark says these washings were done so that they might hold to the tradition of the elders. Note that he doesn't say anything here about holding to the law of God or the law of Moses, but holding to the tradition of the elders. Keep that in mind. Important distinction there. Now, if the disciples of Jesus, Jesus and, and his closest followers, were breaking with this universal Jewish practice, because Mark tells us this is what all the Jews would do. If the disciples of Jesus are breaking with this practice, it must be because Jesus instructed them To do so. So why? Why did Jesus want them to give up the tradition of the elders, this special washing of hands? Well, it is interesting that this is the tradition of the elders and not the teaching of God's law. You won't find this kind of washing in the book of Leviticus. In the book of Leviticus, the priests in Israel did have to wash in a special way before eating in the temple... Uh, Because priests, in general, were under uh, a stricter and more elaborate set of rules that govern things like washing and ceremonial cleanness. It seems that the Pharisees, following the tradition of the elders, wanted to take laws in the book of Leviticus that were given only to priests and extend them to the whole nation of Israel. They probably argued, we should be a nation of priests. All of us should live by the priestly code. They wanted to make the law of the sanctuary the law of the land. In other words, they added to God's law. They made it more strict, more rigorous, we could say, more burdensome. And a big part of this passage, which I'm really not going to talk about this morning. I'll talk about it more next week when we look at this again. A big part of this passage is Jesus showing that the traditions of the elders of Israel that the Pharisees are so zealous to maintain are not at all legitimate applications of God's law, but actually contradicted. And there's always that danger in religious tradition or any kind of tradition that customs and rituals could arise that would contradict the word of God. And indeed, that's what's happened here. But of course, that's not how the Pharisees did. As the Pharisees see it, Jesus is breaking with the practice of hand-washing. And so he must not be a true Jew. He can't be a true Jew because he doesn't wash like one. And if he's not a true Jew, he certainly can't be the Messiah, the promised King. Now again, set this controversy over hand-washing in context. What's just happened in the previous chapter? Right before this, what happens? Jesus has just fed the multitude's bread. In chapter 6, he took bread, and in chapter 6, you can read about the feeding miracle. He takes bread in his hands, he blesses that bread, he breaks that bread, and he distributes distributes that bread. And as he distributes the bread, it is multiplied so that five loaves, very meager provisions, can feed 5,000 people. But for the Pharisees, that miracle really doesn't matter. If the hands giving out the bread are unclean, then the bread is unclean and those who eat it become unclean. And so Jesus is throwing a wrench in the program of the Pharisees. For the Pharisees, the really important thing is not that Jesus is feeding the multitudes, it's that he's defiling the multitudes. They're attacking the table practices of Jesus, his role as host, his role as giver of bread. They don't want the people taking bread from the unwashed and unholy hands of Jesus and his disciples. See why this controversy happens? Verse 4 provides another clue as to what's going on here. Again, as it describes these standard Jewish practices. When they would come in with their groceries from the marketplace, they would not eat until they had gone through a variety of ceremonial washings. Again, not washings prescribed by God's law, but by the tradition of the elders. They would not eat until they had gone through these ceremonial washings. After all, they reasoned, the market is a place of potential defilement. You might unknowingly have contact with unwashed people or unwashed items. And so they would come in from the marketplace and wash their hands and anything else that would touch the food, their cups and their pitchers, uh, even the couches where they would recline to eat. But who has just been in the marketplace and isn't washing after being there? You go back to the very end of chapter 6. This is one of those places where the chapter break really obscures an important connection. Chapter 6, verse 56, we read of Jesus going into the marketplaces, the agoras, the same word that's used, the marketplaces of their villages and cities. And there the sick would be brought to him, and by touching him, they were made well. Jesus has been touched by the outcasts of Israel in the marketplace, and yet when he comes in from the marketplace, he doesn't bother with the washings that the other Jews do before he eats. For Jesus, the agora, the, the marketplace, is not a place of defilement, but a place of mission. It could not be more opposed to the Pharisees' view. Now, when the Pharisees challenged Jesus on this, look at how he responds. He quotes from Isaiah 29. He says, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? In other words, you guys are doing a great job being disobedient, Just like Isaiah prophesied. You guys are doing a great job bringing down judgment on yourselves just as Isaiah prophesied. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The Pharisees and their practices appear to be holy with their scrupulous washing. And of course, the whole point of being holy is so that you can draw near to God. God is holy. To be in His presence, you must be holy. And so through these washings, the Pharisees and the other Israelites are seeking to maintain their holiness so they can draw near to God and enter into His holy presence. But Jesus says to them, actually you're not drawing near to God at all. Your heart is far from Him. Your washings don't bring you closer to God. They take you further away. Your washings don't make you holy. They actually defile you. They don't fit you for the presence of God. They exclude you from the presence of God. And why is this, Jesus says, it's just plain and black and white, because they have put their traditions in the place of God's Word. Their traditions flatly contradict the Word of God. Now, we're going to talk more about tradition next week. The issue here is really not tradition as such, nor is it even ritual per se. Traditions and rituals are really inescapable. The only issue is the shape and source of those traditions and rituals. Here, just focus in on this one thing, this tradition of hand-washing. How did this tradition of hand-washing and washing all the vessels, basically baptizing the food and everything that it would touch that came from the marketplace, how did that tradition contradict the command of God? Well, to see how, we've got to skip down to verse 14. Verse 10-13, through 13, again, I'll talk about next week. That's where Jesus gives another example of a tradition they have established that contradicts God's Word. But we'll pass over that for now. Jump to verse 14. Jesus says, There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but those things which come out of him defile him. What kind of things come out of man that defile him? The kind of sins that Jesus lists in verse 21 and 22 at the end of our passage. Those are the things that come out of the heart of man that defile him. Now, uh, this is called a parable uh, in, in verse 14. And the disciples come and ask him about it. The fact that this saying is called a parable when Jesus says it's not what enters a man from the outside that defiles him, but what comes from out of his heart, the reason, the fact that that's called a parable clues us into something. It tells us that this is a, a, a saying that there's much more to it than just what you would see on the surface. It means this is actually a hard saying, a wisdom saying, that requires contemplation and meditation if we're to understand it. I think the reason the Pharisees come and ask Jesus for a private explanation is because at this point they're very confused. And this is why they're confused. Ironically, it sounds to them like it is Jesus rather than the Pharisees who is setting aside the law of God. It sounds to them like it's Jesus rather than the Pharisees who is setting aside the commandment of God. After all, in the book of Leviticus, uncleanness most certainly is passed on by what you touch or by what you eat. And the prescribed way of dealing with that uncleanness does include a ceremonial washing. So according to the book of Leviticus, if a Jew, so one who lives under the law, if, if an Israelite eats an unclean animal, he becomes unclean. There are certain animals that are designated as unclean. And if you eat something that's unclean according to the law you become unclean. Likewise, according to the book of Leviticus, if you touch something or someone that is unclean, so for example, a dead body, then you become unclean. Again, there are all these ways to become unclean in the law. And so it seems like Leviticus does say what touches a man or what goes into a man makes him unclean. And yet Jesus says it's the Pharisees who are setting aside the law of God. How do we make sense of this? How do we square Jesus with Leviticus? And in fact, we've got that added comment where uh, Mark tells us, throws in parenthetically, that in making this comment, Jesus declared all foods unclean. So he actually does do away with the commandment of God, the the, the dietary laws of the Old Testament. So how do we square Jesus... With Leviticus, why don't we say Jesus is the one setting aside the commandment of God? Well, the first thing to understand is this. When Leviticus talks about uncleanness or defilement, and when Jesus talks about uncleanness, they're really talking about two different things. In the book of Leviticus, uncleanness is symbolic and ceremonial. Jesus is really referring to moral and spiritual uncleanness. Those may not be the best terms to to, to put on it, but that's what we'll use. The uncleanness laws of Leviticus, like laws about unclean foods, weren't meant to last forever. Again, that's why you've got that explanation in verse 14 where Jesus declares all foods clean. The uncleanness laws of Leviticus are not going to be a part of the new age that Jesus is ushering in. And Jesus has been making this clear all along. You might remember back in chapter 1 of Mark's Gospel, he touches a leper. He touches a leper. And instead of Jesus becoming leprous and unclean, the leper is cleansed. It's obvious that these uncleanness laws don't apply to Jesus and his ministry in the same way they do to other Israelites. We saw it in Mark chapter 5. Jesus touched a woman who was unclean because she had a flow of blood. And indeed, in that same chapter, he touched a girl who was unclean because she was dead. He reaches out and touches her corpse. But instead of uncleanness flowing to Jesus, his cleanness, his holiness, his life flows out to them. The woman with the flow of blood is healed. The dead girl is raised up. You see, stories like that really just intensify the question for us. Why were the Israelites living under the law susceptible to being defiled by what they touched and ate? And why is Jesus not susceptible to such defilement? The difference lies within. The difference lies in the heart. Jesus is not subject to defilement from within, from without. Because He is not defiled within. Jesus is not subject to defilement from without because He is not defiled within. He is light and in Him is no darkness at all. He has life and truth in Himself. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is holy inside and out. And so no uncleanness can stick to Him. Uncleanness can never grab onto Him. It can never stick to Him because He's holy. He's holy inside and out. Not so with the Israelites. They are, after all, children of Adam. They are defiled within because the desires of their hearts are full of evil. And because of these inner defilements, they can be defiled outwardly as well under the law. They are full of death on the inside, and so death sticks to them. They're unclean inside and so death sticks to their outside as well. It's like their hearts are death magnets, and when they encounter any kind of death or uncleanness in the world, it latches onto them. That's how the Levitical law worked. Now the Pharisees thought they could protect themselves from this uncleanness, from this death and defilement, if they just kept on doing their washings. If they did these extra washings, they could they could protect themselves from death and defilement. But all their washings were a grand exercise in missing the point. Because the real defilement, the real problem is not ceremonial or symbolic. The real defilement is not from what you eat or what you touch. It comes from within. From a depraved and idolatrous heart. They wash the outside, but their inside remains vile. And in fact, Jesus in Matthew 23 says this to the Pharisees. He says, you hypocrites, you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and self-love. He says to the Pharisees, you are like whitewashed tombs. You appear beautiful outwardly, but inside you are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Outwardly, Jesus says, you appear righteous, you appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, the reason I think Jesus is not setting aside the law of Leviticus, but actually fulfilling that law, is because the Levitical laws themselves actually taught that real defilement comes from within. And the only reason that the Israelites were susceptible to outward defilement was because of their inner defilement. In fact, again, if you read in the book of Leviticus, you find that anything that comes out of the depths of a person's being, anything that comes out of the depths of a person's body, a flow of blood, an emission, a sore that comes through the skin but that originates deeper than the skin, you can read in Leviticus see how that's described. These things made you unclean under the law. Those things that come from deep within make you unclean. And so the law and its symbolic system, the law itself, taught that the real issue is on the inside, not the outside. The Pharisees weren't upholding the law, they weren't making legitimate applications of the law. They actually missed the whole point of the teaching of the law, they had missed the true import of the law. And so three times in this passage, Jesus clarifies. Three times, Jesus says, defilement comes from within. Verse 15, what comes out of a person makes him unclean. Verse 20, again, what comes out of a person makes him unclean. Verse 23, all these evils come from inside and make a person unclean. This is not Jesus engaging in vain repetition. This is the whole point at issue between Jesus and the Pharisees. And it's really the whole point at issue between Jesus and the world today. It's the issue between Jesus and Washington, D.C. It's the issue between Jesus and Hollywood. It's the issue between Jesus and you. Can you personalize this? Can you take what Jesus says and make it your own? Can you say, all these evils come from inside of me and make me unclean? Can you say, what defiles me is not what is out there, but what comes from within? Can you own up to your own sin? Can you take responsibility for your sin and see that the real issue is not in the world out there. It's not the, 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 the movies, the music, the economy, anything else. It's not the way you were raised. It's not anything else. In the end, the ultimate issue is your heart, your sinful desires, your self-deception, your idolatry. You You can blame others. You can blame your environment for your sin. But it won't help and you won't be right. You won't have identified the real problem and changing your environment, changing your circumstances is not going to change who you are on the inside. You have to see fundamentally, the problem is the evil flowing out of your own heart. The problem's not out there. The problem's in here. Martin Luther said, I fear what is within me more than anything outside. Where does evil come from? It doesn't come from the world around us. It doesn't come from the foods we eat. (laughs) As Jesus says here, uh, the food goes into the stomach and gets expelled. The evil comes from our heart. The real excrement in the world comes out of our hearts. It comes from deep inside of me and you. All the problems in the world can be traced back to their source inside of each one of us. Now I know there's much in this passage that is complex. Actually, there are easier ways probably to preach this passage than what I've done this morning. Uh, but I've wanted you to see the real background here, so I've taken you to the book of Leviticus to see it. And I hope that's enriched your understanding of what's going on here. I understand it's a little bit complex. So let me wrap this up by making a very simple application of this story to your life. Here's the application. Don't be a Pharisee. You got it? Don't be a Pharisee. But here's the thing. How do you know if you're being a Pharisee? Well, you're a Pharisee if you underestimate your sin and overestimate what you can do about it. You're a Pharisee. You're doing what the Pharisees did. If you see the solution to the human plight as anything other than Christ and Him crucified, if you put your hope anywhere else besides Christ and Him crucified, You're doing what the Pharisees did. You're underestimating the problem of your sin and overestimating what you can do about it. If you think the solution is found anywhere other than Jesus, if you think it's found in our works or in our politics or in our reason or our technology or our military or our medicine or our leaders or anything that flows out of us, you are in company with the Pharisees. The solution doesn't flow out of us. The problem does. The solution flows out of Jesus. It flows out of His heart, out of His side. When He's hanging on the cross and they pierce His side and blood and water flow out. That's the solution. The solution flows out of Jesus. The blood and water flowing from His side. There alone can we find cleansing from all that defiles us. See, Mark 7 doesn't yet show you what the answer is, but it shows you that Jesus will have an answer. And so how do we find that answer? Mark beckons us to keep reading. To keep reading his story about Jesus. And finally, we come to the end of his Gospel. And at the end of his Gospel, Mark records for us in excruciating detail the death of Jesus on the cross. And there we find the solution to our defiled Because what happens on the cross? The Prince of Life dies. The One who is the light of the world goes dark. Why? He dies so that we who are dead might live. He enters darkness in order to bring us light. On the cross, the Holy One is treated as an unclean thing. He is crucified outside the city. So that we who are unclean might be made holy and brought into the city of God. If you look to anything other than Jesus for the solution for what's wrong with the world, you are a Pharisee. Oh, sure, there are other problems with the Pharisees, a lot of other problems with the Pharisees we could identify here, other problematic characteristics of the Pharisees. You see here, you know, you can put it this way. You're a Pharisee if you put your traditions and your own ideas in place of God's Word. That's what the Pharisees did. You're a Pharisee if you use religion, and especially if you use religious power in a self-serving way to beat others down rather than to serve them. Because that's what the Pharisees did with their power and authority. You're a Pharisee if you're a hypocrite, appearing to be more pious than you really are and thus lacking integrity and honesty. You're a Pharisee if you delight to catch others in their sin, if you like to be a fault finder, you enjoy criticizing others. If you're harder on the sins of others than you are on your own sin. Or if you've come up with your own definition of sin, you define sin in your own way, a way in which it goes beyond God's Word. You're a Pharisee. You're doing what the Pharisees did. You're a Pharisee if you pridefully exalt yourself over others and judge others by your own self-serving standards so that you always end up feeling superior to others around you. These are all manifestations of what Jesus calls the leaven of the Pharisees. And Jesus warns us against it. The Pharisees manifested these qualities all too often. These things show up in our own lives. But ultimately, You want to get to to what's the ultimate issue here. Ultimately, you are a Pharisee if your hope for your life or your hope for humanity is placed anywhere else other than the cross. If the cross does not appear to you as the answer to all that is wrong with the world, all that is wrong with your life. You're a Pharisee. You have not yet grasped The magnitude of your own sin. You don't see how great your own sin is. That only the death of God in human form could undo your sin and cleanse you of all the ways you have defiled yourself with your sin. But when you do see the depth of your depravity, the depth of depravity within your own heart, Suddenly you see, yes, the cross is the only answer. For there at the cross, the love and the mercy of God are poured out to cleanse me, to transform me, to make me new, to make me God's child. And you say, look, I know I can't wash myself. I can wash my body, all right. I can do that. But I cannot cleanse my defiled heart. But thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, I can do. That. Let's give thanks. To God. Oh Father, we do pray that you would turn the eyes of our hearts to Jesus, that we might look upon Him alone as our hope. That Christ and Him crucified might be the only solution we ever look to. That we might know that only in Him will we find salvation from sin and the wrath that our sin deserves. That we might know the only one who can fix all that is wrong with the world is Jesus himself. So may we, may we abandon all attempts to justify ourselves, all attempts to save ourselves, all attempts to save the world around us in our own strength. And look to Jesus, your son, in his name we pray. Amen.